You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hi, this is Dr. Vera Bittner, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Today we're broadcasting live from the National Lipid Association meeting in Chicago, Illinois. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Luther T. Clark. Luther is professor of clinical medicine at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, and he more recently became the global director for scientific affairs and atherosclerosis at Merck and Company. I've known you for many years, Luther, and one of the things that I've always been anxious to interview you about is clinical guidelines. In your capacity as a member of ATP1, ATP2, and ATP3, you were intimately involved in the development of clinical guidelines. Many of our listeners often have concerns or questions about how guidelines are developed and even criticisms about why didn't the members of the guideline committee emphasize this particular subject more strongly. So I know that you can help us understand how rigorous the process of guideline development is and, and the basics of how these guidelines come to fruition. So thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start by talking about something that the audience would have very little insight into. You know, how do you start the process of developing guidelines? How do people get picked for the committees? And just walk us through the process a little bit. Sure. And before we do that, let me just make two disclosures. One is that I'm not currently involved in the development of the new guidelines, which I know are underway. And second, I am the uh, Global Director for Scientific Affairs at Merck & Company. But I did have the great fortune and opportunity to be a member of the National Cholesterol Education Program and the expert panels on the treatment of high cholesterol in adults, ATP1, ATP2, and ATP3. So help us a little bit, Luther. For those people who are out there saying, what were these guys thinking? And maybe it would be very helpful for them to understand how rigorous a process you go through to develop the guidelines. Can you fill us in a little bit about just the process? Sure, I'd be happy to. First of all, it's important to emphasize that these are guidelines and that they do not replace clinicians' clinical judgment and decisions about individual patients. But there are several steps, I would say, that are key in putting the guideline together, and it is a very rigorous, a very deliberate, and a very comprehensive process. One of the first steps is really identifying who the people are that should be a part of the panel. And if you look at each of the panels, there's been a variety of individuals on those panels, experts in the science and medicine of lipids, representatives from organizations that have a special interest in treating lipid disorders and reducing cardiovascular disease, such as the American Heart Association, and importantly, clinicians who are involved in taking care of patients. So you'd, you'd like to make sure that you have on the panel a broad representation, not only of expertise, but individuals who will be users and promoters of the guidelines. Another important aspect is identifying you know, what are the critical issues that need to be addressed by the guidelines. One of those is how do you identify individuals who are at risk? How do you identify individuals who should be treated? And then importantly, how does one go about appropriately treating them? And the guidelines are designed to uh, help provide guidance 
to uh, clinicians as to how to do each of these. So that's very interesting. So you obviously have to pick people who have different expertise for each area that you're concerned about, as you described. And then what do they actually do? Do they sit around at a table and give their best guess at what direction, of, say, primary prevention should go? What would your assignment be if you were a member of this committee to try and develop the data? Well, again, there are a couple of aspects of that. The first is identifying what the critical questions are that the committee needs to answer in uh, making recommendations. And those questions come from uh, several sources. One, they come from the experts who have been asked to participate in the development of the guidelines. Two, they come from a comprehensive review of the literature and other sources where the issues are important. Following identification of the key questions and issues that need to be addressed, then there is a dividing of those into various groupings So one group might be identifying those patients who are at high risk or who are at a risk that merits therapy. The second would be looking at what therapies are available. And the third would be looking at the approaches to therapy, whether that be a non-pharmacologic therapy or pharmacologic therapies. The key piece, I would say, in putting the guidelines together is what is the evidence to support each of the recommendations that are made. And as one would know if who carefully reads the guidelines, every recommendation that is made by the committee has a statement of the strength and type of evidence that supports that. And we know that there's a variety of types of evidence, the strongest of which being evidence from clinical trials. But there are other types of evidence that go into uh, making decisions. And one of the important things for anyone who reads the guidelines to recognize is that these are recommendations. They are based on the evidence, but the strength of that evidence varies. So each recommendation has an accompanying statement of the type and strength of evidence. So they are indeed uh, evidence-based recommendations. So Luther, how does the evidence get presented when you're sitting there in the guideline committee, would you be assigned a topic and you would have to review all the literature on that particular topic? Or does everybody review the evidence more collectively? Can you kind of go through that process with us? Well, I can speak more specifically as it related to ATP3. And what occurred there is that the questions that were developed, there was a, a long list of key questions that it was believed the panel should address. The questions were then categorized, and based on the expertise of the individuals in the panel, the initial evaluation of the literature, and we had assistance from a vendor who helped do a comprehensive literature search. So there was someone who helped gather all the literature, all the data that would be relevant to a particular question. So a smaller group within the panel would have an initial evaluation, read-through, and summary of that evidence, and then present to the larger panel what their interpretation of the evidence was and what they thought were the most appropriate recommendations based on that evidence. The full panel then would have an extended, and sometimes, I mean, really extended discussion of the large as well as the small issues and come to a consensus as what is most appropriate to recommend to clinicians who are taking care of patients. And again, I'd like to reemphasize that the guidelines are for clinicians who are taking care of patients, and that's an important perspective that we kept in uh, putting together the recommendations. 
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Lipid Illuminations on ReachMD XM 160. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, your host. We're broadcasting live from the National Lipid Association meeting in Chicago, Illinois. Today we're speaking with Luther Clark, professor of clinical medicine at State University of New York and Downstate Medical Center, and we're talking about the process of developing clinical guidelines. So it's fascinating because everyone has a commentary on what they think should have been or shouldn't have been in the guidelines. And I think they have a feeling that people just sit around at a table and come up with what their opinion might be on how to treat. But this is really a rigorous process. You're basically looking at all the available literature and then trying to base your major recommendations on the strength of available clinical trials. Is that correct? Absolutely. And one of the keys to a successful panel and again, as I mentioned, I had the opportunity to be on three of these, is really strong and effective uh, leadership. And the leadership we had, you know, Dr. Scott Grundy, who was the uh, chair of the panel, and Dr. James Kleeman, who was the uh, coordinator, helping to really, I guess, keep the group on message and focus. Because as you could imagine, if you have 25 highly accomplished experts who come in with often very strong views about uh, various questions that would be discussed, it's important to uh, hear everyone, to put all the evidence on the table, and then to come to a consensus as to what it actually shows and what would be in the best interest of recommendations for patients. So it is quite a fascinating process, but one which, again, I would emphasize is very deliberate, very comprehensive, very thoughtful, and eye-opening for those of us who had an opportunity to participate. I realize you have an executive summary that's supposed to give the salient features. How much discussion goes into how to implement these guidelines? Once you've got kind of the, the core text, the Bible, so to speak, of the recommendations, how much is it under the committee's mission to look at how you might roll that out into clinical practice and make sure that there are strategies for implementation. Well, you actually raise a really excellent question, and certainly in the most recent set of guidelines, that was one of the major aspects of the document. The final document will have an executive summary, which in a very abbreviated fashion highlights what the key recommendations are. So one who uh, might not be able to read through the entire document will have those recommendations. But a very important feature of any guidelines is that this is what we're recommending that you do, but then the question of how is it that you do that? How do you implement? How do you execute on the uh, recommendations? So that in the document, there's a rather uh, extensive portion which addresses issues of compliance and adherence, issues of how to, in fact, implement guidelines, realizing that there's a broad spectrum of clinical practice scenarios from the private practitioner to large groups to clinics and academic medical centers, and how does one actually implement those recommendations in the different settings. So thank you, Luther, for that. I guess my other question would be the update issue. I mean, obviously, when you're focusing on the strength of the evidence, probably as you're compiling the document, new evidence becomes available. And it was unusual to then have the update come out, kind of a joint ACCHA statement. Is this something that you think going forward will be valuable? And how do you deal with the fact that sometimes the science is moving so quickly that by the time you get a consensus that the data has changed somewhat? Well, that's a tremendous challenge to guideline development. 
And again, looking at the history of the development of the ATP guidelines, sometimes you will know about studies that are ongoing or studies that have been completed that have not yet been reported in the literature. But at other times, a number of new studies will come out after the guidelines. And just given the number of clinical studies that are being done, often as soon as one set of guidelines are completed, there are new studies which have come out. And this is what happened with ATP-3. So ATP-3 came out in 2001, and then shortly afterwards, there were several very important clinical trials. And the panel then uh, looked at the existing guidelines and looked at the new clinical studies, and in that case, provided an update which specifically addressed the implications of the new clinical trials. So the point which I think is important there is that medicine is continuing to change, new evidence is continuing to evolve, and the guidelines have to be such that they can adjust to new findings that will impact specific recommendations. Well, I would personally would love to applaud you for all the hard work you all did. I think that time has borne out that they're an excellent set of guidelines, and certainly if they're followed, they'll reduce cardiovascular events. I guess I'd like to end with just asking, you know, what would you say to those naysayers out there who are always criticizing that, oh, well, these guys didn't think enough about HDL or they didn't think enough about triglycerides? You know, what would you say to them in terms of the whole process of developing guidelines and why they should be reassured with the effort? I would say several things. One is to remember that the guidelines are a comprehensive, very deliberate process by individuals who are really trying to make recommendations that are in the best interest of patients. The second is it's really important to look at the guidelines carefully because sometimes there's a criticism which is unfair because it either misinterprets or misunderstands something that is recommended in the uh, guidelines. And third, there can be actual uh, disagreements. So these are recommendations, and the most frequent disagreement that I encountered tend to be one in which the person who was criticizing the guidelines felt that we should be more aggressive and should be recommending more vigorous therapy, which is totally understandable given the magnitude of cardiovascular disease and risk. And whenever we can do more to reduce that risk, it's an important thing to do. Well, Luther, thank you very much for spending your time with us today at the NLA meeting. We've been speaking with Dr. Luther Clark, Professor of Clinical Medicine at State University of New York, Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, and currently the Global Director for Scientific Affairs and Atherosclerosis at Merck on his insights on the process of cholesterol guideline development. Thank you very much, Luther. Thank you, Alan. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations, presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.